0: So uh, to begin, uh, some of you might be familiar with the bodhisattva vows. Um, uh, The bodhisattva vows are the vows to uh, live and be lived for the benefit of all beings. And so when somebody gets really serious about these vows, they sew a rakasu. So this is a rakasu here, these little bibs that people wear. Some people in Yaz have them. And so uh, if a student wants to take the precepts, they want to live by the bodhisattva vows, um, they might sew a rakasu. And when they sew a rakasu, um, lots of stitching and a piece of pristine white silk goes in the back of the rakasu. And so when this, the rakasu is done, you give that, um, the completed rakasu to your teacher. The teacher chooses a Dharma name for you, and then uh, writes that dharma name in kanji in black ink on the back of the rakasu. And it's gifted back to you in a a big celebratory um, ceremony called Jukai, uh, which is the lay ordination. So it's a wonderful ceremony. It's a really beautiful thing. Um, For the teacher, it's quite a process to choose a dharma name for a student. And of course, uh, to do the inking on a rakasu it takes a lot of practice so particularly for, um, for Western teachers who maybe didn't grow up writing in kanji uh, and maybe didn't grow up using uh, brushes to write with it could be a little stressful so most teachers do a lot of practicing so I'm not Dharma transmitted, but I had the opportunity to support somebody through this process um, some time ago. And so I was inking my first rakasu. And so um, what's typically recommended is you take several sheets of paper and you, get your, you grind your ink by hand and you get your brush and you practice the kanji. And when you do this, you have the rakasu with you, but you keep it on uh, like a very distant area of the room so that you don't get any ink on it accidentally. So you're really careful with it. Um, so here I am, practicing the kanji, rakasu's on the other side of the room, uh, being very careful. You check, you check your hands a lot to make sure you haven't gotten any ink on your hands so you're not dragging it, dragging it across the paper or across the silk. And at a certain point, I needed to stand up to go check the dimensions of the rakasu. So I there's um, over here, far away. And uh, I stand up, and just as I'm standing up, my hand brushes a pencil that's on the table, and somehow, like the velocity of my hand, like tapped the pencil so it dipped into the inkwell, and like bounced out of the inkwell and started like spiraling through the air, and the pencil could like it could go anywhere in the room but it just so happens to be going right at the rakasu, which I have so carefully placed very far away from myself. So the pencil's like, and it lands right in the center of the pristine white silk of the rakasu. So uh, the good news is that uh, I didn't pass out or throw up when that <laughs> happened. Um, uh, but wow, what a stressful moment, right? My first rakusu, you know, want it to be perfect. This is something that typically somebody has for their entire life, you know, it's like a tattoo, almost like something that's like really meaningful for someone. Uh, so, at first, of course, I'm like, oh my God, you know, this, is, this is a major problem. What have I done? This is a big mistake. So, I'm like trying to fix it. Like, can I dab it out? Can I wash it out? How do I, what do I do? Um, and it became apparent at a certain point that there was, uh, there was no fixing this rakasu. You can't just like take it out. Or, you know, a student might spend a year making their rakasu. Like, there's n- not a lot of ways around this. So, at a certain point, I just realized, like, this is how it is, like, I'm gonna have to accept this. Um, and I got settled about it, and I sat down. And um, so the, the name that I gave this this student was um, uh, Tokuju Seizan, Devoted Jewel Green Mountain. And so I'm just, you know, it's time, I gotta ink the rakasu, and I realize um, the mark that the, inked pencil made on the silk actually ends up being like the perfect shape to be one of the letters in the name. And the word that that letter fit in was jewel. And I, I loved this experience because I feel like uh, so much of what we're doing in this practice is turning mistakes into jewels. We're taking problems, we're taking challenges, and we're transforming them into the way. We're turning straw into gold. Uh, So when an oyster, out in the ocean, when an oyster gets a piece of sand stuck inside, inside its shell, um, what it does with that piece of sand, with that intruder, it turns it into a pearl. That's how a pearl's formed. So that's what we're doing in this practice. We're taking uh, what feels uh, really hard, you know, our, our suffering. We take our suffering and we turn it into the way we actually make it uh, nutriment for our awakening. So that's what tonight is about, that's what the talk's about is suffering and how to transform that suffering into the path, how to transform our obstacles into the way. So to start, what is suffering exactly? So uh, the word dukkha, dukkha is uh, both Pali and Sanskrit for suffering. It's typically translated as suffering. but suffering doesn't like really encompass the full meaning of dukkha. So dukkha, some other translations are um, unsatisfactoriness, difficulty, stress, uneasiness. And it refers to both like the greatest suffering uh, a human life can experience, uh, and also very minor things. So it's like the full spectrum. So it could be um, you know, just the discomfort in you know, uneasiness of having itchy socks, or um, or uh, something bigger, like feeling like kind of incompetent at work, feeling like a coworker is incompetent at work, and feeling the the dukkha of the judgment of that person, or um, gosh, you know, what I'd really feel a lot better if I could just lose ten pounds. I'd, I'd probably be happy if I could just like look a little different. Or I'd probably be happy if I had the right partner, or the right car, or the right apartment, or um, if I could have a child. So whatever it is, you know, there's all of these different ways that, um, that dukkha expresses as some level of um, unsatisfactoriness, not enough enoughness, some, some sense that um, things are never quite adequate or what they should be. So this is uh, dukkha as defined in the sutras. Uh, now this bhikkhus, that's all you practitioners. Um, now this bhikkhus is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering, aging is suffering, illness is suffering, death is suffering. Union with what is displeasing is suffering. Separation from what, what is pleasing is suffering. Not to get one, what one wants is suffering. In brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are suffering. So what I want to highlight in this particularly is not getting what one wants, getting what we don't want, and losing what we love. So these are like hallmarks of being human. Um, like we, we can spend our entire lifetime just trying to get what we want. Like that, that's just like the basis of a human life, can be just trying to get what we want. But the problem is that desire, the mechanism of desire is insatiable. Like even, you've probably noticed, even if we get what we want, there might be a brief satisfaction, but then the way desire functions is if we haven't addressed desire itself, that desire is just gonna find a new object to want. And if that's satisfied, then it's going to find a new object to want. It's insatiable in that way. So we can't really base a life just on trying to get what we want because we'll never be satisfied. And on the other hand, we're always trying to avoid what we don't want, what's unpleasant. And that doesn't work either. We can't actually eliminate all unpleasant things from the universe. Like We're going to have to experience unpleasant things. And even if we're like, Briefly successful, and like we've gotten what we want, and we've gotten rid of what we don't want, there's like that miraculous moment where like everything feels good. Well, things are impermanent, so we're gonna lose what we love, and that moment's gonna change, right? So there's no refuge in the game of wanting and not wanting, like it doesn't actually work. Um, so that's a, a, <coughs> a flaw in, um, in the way the psyche functions. There's actually, um, there's a wholesome form of desire called chanda, and these are desires uh, that are beneficial, that are wholesome, generosity, kindness, compassion, letting go, the desire to let go. There are wholesome desires, and desire that's based in greed, hatred, and delusion doesn't lead to happiness. So this is, Uh, Earlier this year, I spoke about the Four Noble Truths. Kodo spoke about the Four Noble Truths. So this is First Noble Truth material. There is suffering in this life. Like, that's just how it is. Uh, Some of you may have noticed, uh, if you're driving south on the freeway towards Santa Cruz, um, on the side of the freeway, in a very unexpected area, there's this really large Buddha statue, very large um, and i 've always been kind of curious about it, like what it 's doing there i don 't think there's a temple anywhere nearby like it 's kind of mysterious to me, um, and it 's sitting like on the kind of classic lotus that Buddhas often sit on, and it 's on this uh, that 's resting on this uh, like big concrete block so some time ago, I came across a photo of it from the other side. Um, so usually I'm seeing it from the freeway side, but the other side showed uh, what's in the base in the, in the concrete block and it's, it's quite large and um, there's like an opening. So traditionally uh, for like a, a Buddha statue, it's treated pretty reverent- reverentially. Like you don't want anything that's like too dirty or mundane nearby. Um, and so I was really surprised to see what they were storing in this concrete block. Garbage dumpsters. And what I love about that is um, that a, a lotus flower, it actually, it grows out of the mud. Like there's a phrase, no mud, no lotus. So. A lotus really like, it needs the mud to grow. So our liberation, it's born out of difficult conditions. So in the same way that these, these dumpsters were, like, lit- are literally the foundation for this Buddha, we can say that the, the garbage of our lives, the trash of our lives, uh, is also the foundation for our Buddhahood. Like, it actually depends on it. Like we think that our obstacles uh, are diversions from the path, the path of happiness. It's like, "Oh, if this would just go away, then I could continue on my path to happiness." Um, but what if we treated those, those difficulties as like the, the next stepping stone on the path, like they're the nutriment for the path? So yeah, what, what if? What if your awakening actually depended on your suffering? So it's pretty radical, because we think we need to get rid of that to be happy. We need to get rid of our suffering uh, to awaken. But um, that's the case that I'm going to make tonight, that your awakening, your freedom, your happiness depends on your suffering. So there's no need to get rid of it. So in order for this to function, it actually requires um, it requires a change in perspective, and, and particularly a change in expectations. So uh, what we need to realize, like, deeply realize, is that suffering is a part of life. Like This is one of the three marks of existence. And um, you know, many people spend their whole life trying to avoid difficulty, uh, trying to avoid suffering. Um, but what if, they, what if suffering was just OK? Like it's not something that we have to fight or repress or get rid of. Um, Like there may be a time with our dukkha that it's actually really appropriate to make a skillful, wise change to a circumstance. And that's great and necessary at times. And um, there's the possibility of not being in conflict with our dukkha, Um, that it's actually like, there's a, we're culturally programmed to see suffering as like a problem like we've messed up if we're su- suffering or something's wrong with our life if we're suffering but that's actually not the case it's like suffering just happens in our life it's actually okay if it's there um so like shifting the expe- expectation to realize that we can't insulate ourselves from unpleasant experience um, that actually allows us to open to and accept our suffering. So there's two ways uh, to respond to suffering. The first is what humans normally do, which is, um, and this probably will sound familiar to you in some ways, so you might listen for your own experience in this. But typical ways, the the first way to relate to suffering includes things like um, resisting it, fighting it, trying to get rid of it, uh, repressing it, ignoring it, medicating, uh, wallowing in it, blaming others for it, not taking responsibility for it. So, I can relate to some of those. Uh, Pretty familiar. So typically with this form of, or this way of relating to suffering, we're uh, in a way, we're crushed by it, like we're made small by it. There's a teaching uh, some of you may be familiar with called the 12 fold chain of dependent arising. And it, it's a description of the ways that we kind of get caught in the cycle of suffering over and over again. We, some, there's something uh, unpleasant or difficult, and we don't want it, and uh, we suffer over it, and that generates more suffering, and we just spiral in our little torture chamber of dukkha. Um, So that's one way of existing. That's one way of relating to suffering. The second way to respond to our suffering, and I I love thinking of it this way. The second way is to be ennobled by our suffering. And I love that word, like, to be ennobled by suffering. Like, it makes me, like, there's a dignity to it, right? Like, it makes me wanna, like, sit up a little straighter when I think of being made noble by suffering, especially because suffering, it often makes us want to be small, like curl in on ourselves. So what if in a moment of of dukkha, just sat up straight, like royalty with your dukkha, to be noble with it, to be ennobled by it. Uh, James Baldwin said, um, people who don't suffer can't grow up. So, can you allow your suffering to let you grow up rather than break you down? So, our task with suffering is to understand it, to get to know it. Suzuki Roshi, the founder of this temple, he said, Hell is not punishment, it's training. So, what if we related to our suffering rather than as punishment? It's so easy to do that. But actually to see it as like, oh, like this is my training. Like this arena of difficulty, this is actually my learning lab. This is my curriculum for waking up. So our task is to meet our dukkha as a visitor to be welcomed uh, rather than an intruder to be extricated. So don't go to war with your suffering. It doesn't work. We do it all the time, but it doesn't work. So there's a, a teaching that isn't mentioned often in Zen. Um, it comes from the Theravadan tradition. So you might hear it in a, an insight center, in a Vipassana center. Um, and it's one of my favorite teachings. And it's called um, Transcendent Dependent Arising. So it's kind of like the parallel to, I mentioned, the uh, 12-fold chain of dependent arising, which describes how we get stuck in the wheel of suffering. Um, uh, liberative dependent arising or transcendent dependent arising describes how we can move from this suffering to liberation and so um, uh, it des- describes these 12 links of um, you know, X conditions, y, y conditions, etc etc etc, all the way to liberation and uh, what I find so encouraging is that the very first link in the chain to liberation—and this should be like, wow, like what is that link? Because like, that, if if I can just do that, all the other links will naturally occur. You know, just they condition the next one, conditions the next one, all the way to awakening. So like, we really want to pay attention to that first one—the first link on the the road to liberation: suffering. So suffering is actually a necessary condition for awakening. So when suffering arises, the next link in the chain is faith. And the key here is to move ourselves along from suffering to the next link. And this is, this is what I'm about to say, is this is the practice. You am know, like, oh yeah, transform your, your suffering into awakening. The way we do that, like actually the, the practice is to be mindful and compassionate with it Um, so um, be mindful if that's what's available be compassionate if that's available do one or the other or both but this is actually the practice when you meet your suffering with mindfulness or compassion that's what moves it to the next the next uh, link of faith Um, because we go wow like when I do that I notice it really alleviates suffering and like that grows my faith in this practice and when there's faith ah there's The next link, gladness in the heart. Wow, I feel this genuine gladness that this practice exists. And gladness conditions joy. There's joy in the heart. And that joy, when we're filled with piti, with that rapture, that conditions tranquility. Tranquility conditions happiness. And happiness, the contentment of happiness, conditions concentration. We think in meditation we need to get concentrated to I feel good, it's not interesting. It's actually contentment, the contented, happy mind that needs nothing, that naturally can, can, uh, collects, that naturally settles, and is still. So that contented mind leads to concentration. Concentration leads to seeing things as they really are, yata-bhuta-nyanadasana, seeing the way things really are, to disenchantment, dispassion, nibbana. And then that's knowledge and destruction of the taints. So full awakening, this, just like water flowing downstream, each of these conditions the next. But it all starts with meeting our suffering with mindfulness and compassion. So mindfulness, it's just knowing what's happening in the present moment, really simple. So you can be, practice mindfulness right now. Can you like, sense that you have a body? Just being aware there's a body here. Being aware there's a voice that you're hearing. You might tune in and notice if there's an emotion present or um, a mood. Maybe there's a sense of interest or boredom or uh, energy or tiredness. Just including all of that in um, in the space of awareness. So when dukkha arises, can you pause for it? Can you give it space to ex- express, to like really fully recognize it? See what it feels like in the body. Notice what storylines the mind is saying, not getting lost in the storylines, but noticing what you know, what's the mind kicking out in this situation. I was sitting on a retreat at one point, and um, I probably replayed this situation, like a this conversation with my boss, like uh, maybe a thousand times, maybe more. Like it was like the number one hit of the week. Um, and uh, like same narrative, it would go again and again. It, it was a, a conversation that hadn't happened yet, I should mention, it was like, um, something that was gonna happen in the future. And there was like, so it was like rehearsing, this rehearsing mechanism. So I like play the conversation over and over again in my head. And of course I'm like, I'm not trying to do this. I'm trying to pay attention to my breath, but this is what the mind is kicking out. So after a while, you know, so I practice being mindful of what's happening in the present. Uh, Notice, okay, the thoughts, and then, you know, having enough uh, stillness and subtleness not to get caught in the thoughts, but just kind of notice what's happening in the mind. And then the mindfulness growing to really include the body. And then what emotion was happening? It was like, oh, wait a second. There's an emotion that's fueling this entire thought cycle. I'm anxious. This is just anxiety. So at the core, like I could try to figure out that, that conversation. I could rehearse that conversation until I just had it like dialed. And so there's a way that the mind thought that figuring out that conversation is what would allow me to relax. Like if I could just nail this, then I'll be okay. But what was fueling it was anxiety. So really I could undercut the tendency of the mind and just go straight to the anxiety and take care of the heart. Just being mindful of the feeling and being kind and compassionate to the anxious one. Like that's what the system needed to be able to release the narrative. So when we grow our mindfulness, we begin to be able to take in more data to be able to, to better see what's happening in the mind and heart, and to be able to respond accordingly, to be able to, to listen more carefully to our dukkha, uh, and to take good care of it. And so when we do this, uh, something that I've found is uh, we don't always need to solve our problems in the ways that we think we think we need to. Like you know, there's there are times, like I said, that will uh, a wise and compassionate, active response is needed. And more often than not, our problems are self-generated. Um, they're actually. Um, They come from amplifying our likes and our dislikes and getting caught in fixed views and struggling against the way things are. Um, And for that form of suffering, we don't always need to solve it. And so this is one of the reasons that some teachers say rather than uh, needing to solve our problems, this practice can allow us to dissolve our problems. And this is possible. I've sat retreats where I went in just feeling so torn up about something, um, like really harassed by some internal narrative, and just seen it completely evaporate, like just become non-existent by the end of the retreat. Like the mind can fully release something that feels so significant, um, so important. And that's a taste of freedom. So in summary, don't waste your suffering. Don't waste it. This from the uh, Sufi master, Pierre Vilayat Khan. Overcome any bitterness that you may have, overcome any bitterness that may have come because you were not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart. Each of us is part of her heart and is therefore endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are sharing in the totality of that pain. You are called upon to meet it in joy instead of self-pity. So I've had some really good self-pity tracks. And I can be the first to say, it doesn't help. Self-pity does not help. Uh, Self-pity makes us feel small. And there's this sense with self-pity that's like, no one is suffering the way that I am suffering. and instead instead of suffering making us small and isolated, uh, instead, uh, one of the gifts of suffering is that it can wake us up to the suffering of all beings. So there's a way that suffering can connect us to our shared humanity. Uh, so when I was in my 20s, uh, my dad passed away. And that was, of course, very difficult. Um, I was very close with my dad, and I suffered a lot over it. And while it was really hard, uh, there was a way that um, uh, when my heart, when I was uh, was brokenhearted over this, there was a way that my heart broke open to include all of the beings who lost a parent, to include all of the beings who had lost a loved one. Like I could feel like my own personal suffering and how that's not my own suffering. This is the grief of all the beings who have lost a dear one in their life. And it became a source of compassion. So when we can become mindful of our suffering, there's a way that the heart's purified through mindfulness, and what that purify- purification can yield is compassion. So even if you, you can't access compassion, some people have a really hard time touching compassion, um, don't worry about it too much. If you practice mindfulness with suffering, suffering is a proximate cause for the arising of compassion. So through the purification of the heart, uh, compassion can naturally arise. This from uh, Jack Weller. The work of the mature person is to carry grief in one hand and gratitude in the other, and to be stretched large by them. So can we be stretched large by our suffering? So large that we can include the whole world in our heart. So from this, uh, this simple practice of paying attention, um, I think the remarkable becomes possible. Like I really believe that we're here, like, on this planet for something more significant than just trying to be comfortable or just trying to have pleasant experiences. Like, that's like kind of playing it small, right? I think all of you are here for something bigger than that. Like You're here to somehow be a light in the world, to be truly happy and not, not just so that you can be happy, but so that you can allow others to be happy. Uh, As Viktor Frankl said, um, what gives light must endure burning. So there may be a way that you need to burn with your dukkha for some time in order to shine the brightest. And when that happens, uh, the miraculous becomes possible. So I'll close with this from Martin Luther King. And, and this, this is what becomes possible when we're no longer afraid of our suffering. Like what an amazing possibility that we we could live in a way that's not afraid of suffering. He says, To our most bitter opponents we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will and we shall continue to love you. Throw us in jail and we shall still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. I had mentioned the Bodhisattva vow at the beginning, and it goes like this. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. So this is the way of the Bodhisattva, to live for the benefit of others. One day, we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. Let's sit for a moment together.